it's such a privileged position as a GP, more privileged, I think, than lots of other specialties. And we can do really straightforward things that make such a big difference to patients. Um, and that is, you know, even on a bad day for me, there's still nothing else that I'd rather do. Dr Fiona Musgrove on what it means to her to be a GP. Welcome to the Geeky Medics podcast. So I'm Fiona Mosgrove. Um, it's really great to be joining you for this podcast. So I'm a GP with a special interest in respiratory medicine. And at the moment I work, uh, I do three days clinically and I also have a half day where I work uh, with a, a local respiratory improvement project. Um, I do quite a few other bits and pieces. So I do some work with the Primary Care Respiratory Society on the Education Committee. I do some work with uh, international primary care um, respiratory colleagues as well. And um, some collaborative work with pharma colleagues around improving respiratory outcomes um, for COPD. Um, I trained as a GP, became a partner, had a daughter, wasn't really loving work when I went back to it and then I decided to do a diploma in respiratory medicine which I did and really really enjoyed and then I took a brief break and then I did a master's which was focused on bronchiectasis and then started to get involved with primary care respiratory society and was able to go to conference um in uh that was just pre-pandemic and that was in um Madrid um, and it's all just really gone on from there. So I have quite a, a varied week. Um, I also now start to do some uh, asthma clinics in secondary care a little bit, which is quite nice. Um, and we're looking towards having a sort of GP with a special interest role more formally in the next little while um, where I work. So um, I get to do lots of interesting and varied things. And obviously I'm really passionate about um, respiratory care. Um, yeah, so that's me in a nutshell. It's quite a big nutshell, but thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. It's really interesting because I mean we, we get lots of I don't I don't actually think we've had a respiratory specialist on, but um, we have had uh, Amanda Howe, which is a previous president of the Royal College of GPs, on, uh, and I think this. I think one of the appeals of general practice is that it's, you can make it kind of whatever you want to make it, um, and I think that's it will be interesting to talk to you about that because I think. Um, with with GPs, you kind of think, oh right, you become a GP and then you become a partner. But you've kind of done that and moved on a bit. I mean, did you like being a partner? Um, I found it quite difficult to make it a priority in the way that it probably needs to be. Being a partner is quite a lot of work over and above your clinical work, and different practices work differently in terms of how they allow time for that or if they allow time for that um my specific situation in my home life and having a daughter and then going back to work felt quite pressured and I think part of me felt where I was working at that time that I wasn't really able to practice the way that I wanted to for various reasons and I didn't really feel able to contribute and actually what you said is right you know the the path that's laid out for you if you go to GP is you do your GP training you find somewhere you want to work and you become a partner and then that's it you've reached the top and I and I did that and I sort of didn't really didn't really feel like reaching the top to me and I think it, it partnership isn't for everyone and it wasn't for me 
Um, and the bit where I get to have a special interest and do a bit of research and know a bit about data is the was the missing piece for me. And I think how I like to practice is I really like to know about the evidence and best care to speak to patients about that. And that lends itself to having an area of special interest. It also does lend itself generally to GP, but it's quite difficult to do that really broadly because everything moves so quickly that um, with the best will in the world, it can be really challenging to keep, mm. to keep up. With yeah. yeah. And I think I, I, we were talking a bit before about, you know, the GPs being a generalist specialty do you, do you still yeah. enjoy being a generalist and and uh, and uh, you know having a special interest in being a specialist? As you know, having yeah. a bit of both is quite nice, I suppose. It absolutely is. I mean, the, there is such variety in GP, and there's such interest because you come across things all the time that you think, I'm not really sure about the evidence for that. I don't really mm. know what's the um and and you know, there's lots of information out there. The re- real skill in GP, I think, is in knowing when to access information and which information to access and in in managing uncertainty and you know variety is really important to me and um but I think as a GP I think I could see more of us having a special interest because it is quite nice to be able to do lots of things but also to do one little bit of stuff quite quite well and and to be able to you know help your colleagues with it and facilitate um within the area that you work in um, chats about inhalers and just being able to field questions around um, what to do with patients, clinical management. It, it It's quite a nice way to improve the overall standard of care yeah. it, wherever you work. So I think we'll, we'll cycle around a bit, um, if that's all right. So um, just hmm. to talk about where you trained and now where you work and how that sort of changes um, what you do. So um, wh- where did you go to medical school initially? So I um, went to medical school at the University of Aberdeen um, and I intercalated. So I was there for uh, six years and then I went and did my foundation years in um, Nine Wells Hospital in Dundee, which is the next health board down from me. And so I moved to do that and I did my GP training there. And then kind of by chance, um, my husband moved back up for, for work for a promotion. So I then followed him up. Um, and then we've been we've been back here ever since. Um, so that's quite quite a wee bit of time ago, about 10, 10 plus years ago now. Um, and yeah, I think it's quite it's quite nice. I, I liked uh, Aberdeen for uni and Tayside's a really, really nice place to work for foundation training. It's quite a small mm. um, it's quite a small uh, hospital and they are most people who train there stay there so they're very they import a few people and I was one of the few so it's quite a yeah it's quite a nice environment to, yeah. to work in and are you in a reasonably rural area now that you that you work in or I, I have been previously when I was a partner I was in a big semi-rural uh, practice but I now work in inner city Aberdeen um in a practice where we've got we actually cover two sites and we've got about twenty one thousand patients a large percentage of those have a high index of deprivation. Um, uh, so that's where I work at the minute, which fits quite nicely with having a respiratory interest because um, respiratory health and smoking particularly are, are, are big drivers of inequality. And so working in a practice where there's lots of prevalence of respiratory disease means you can try and have a fairly big impact, which is nice. Having a specialist interest, did you find that, did you find that, 
difficult to get into? Was it something you just thought, I need to time out to, like you say, do a master's and things like that? Or did you find any barriers to having a specialist interest as a GP? Yeah, so I think the main, like there's no path set out for these and, and that can be a barrier in itself. There is no apply here for a spiritually special interest position. I worked in a spiritual job when I worked in Nine Wells and I really enjoyed it. There was really good department, really good teaching, enthusiastic doctors. Um, and I almost kind of left and, and went to pursue a spiritual career because of that. But I stayed in GP because I love GP. I was halfway through my training. Um, and I often thought over the years about doing a diploma and I just thought I didn't have enough time. And you know, I was having a bit of a tough time at work and I kind of just thought, well, so I was having a tough time at work. I was doing, I'd been involved with other sort of charitable stuff outside of work that sort of reminded me what it felt like to enjoy what you do <laughs> a, a bit more than I was enjoying yeah, it. And so yeah. I, then, I then happened to, and, and by chance, the person who got me involved in that is a respiratory clinician who I've worked with in the past very encouraging and supportive um, person and so um through that I, I just by chance I looked on the website for the diploma and it, the the application deadline was that evening or at midnight that night so I just thought I'm just going to go for it because actually you you can worry too much about whether you have time you make time for things that you enjoy and and you know I, I work I've got a, a daughter um so um so yeah, so I, I applied and then I thought, well, I'll just see if I like this. And I really, really enjoyed it, particularly the reading research and, and putting that together and, and I'm using it to build answers to questions around clinical um, management. So, and and then I just continued to make time. I, took a, I didn't go straight into master's. I took six months off because that was in the middle of lockdown. So it was quite tricky time in general. And then it's really about kind of networking and connections. So connecting with organizations like Primary Care Respiratory Society that can help connect you with fellow interested people is really important. Going to conferences is really important, seeing people that you're inspired by. So I went to, uh, not, I keep saying Milan, Madrid, and saw lots of incredible speakers. And I knew that I really just wanted to ask one of them for advice about my masters. So I sort of approached a colleague and said, is this would would this person mind if I emailed them? And he said, no, not at all. Just just drop him an email. So I emailed him, and then he supervised my masters, um, and that's given me a sort of niche in bronchiectasis, uh, which is fascinating. And um, you know, I've kind of developed a niche in part of the the wider sort of bronchiectasis um, team now within kind of um, areas where I work. So there are the the barriers are that there are no path. There, there are no path there is no no preset path and you have to make it yourself uh, and I think um time and finance can be barriers as well because you're often having to fund these things yourself um I think probably people could find funding for these things um if they were you know if they wanted to but it's you, you've you've got to have a passion for it and it's got to be something you really want to do yeah. or else it's just really onerous um yeah yeah because I think I, I, I did a, an F2 uh, placement in primary care and I, I found a lot of the more complex respiratory stuff was then dealt with by the specialist nurses. So, you, you know, you kind of, 
you ended up taking a back seat and saying, oh, well, book in with the, with the specialist nurse because they'll be able to run you through their, you know, the asthma, you know, management and things like that. And uh, obviously they're experts in that and they'll pr- probably do a better job than you, but they'll definitely do a job, better job than F2 in private care. Um, so I, I guess, you know, that's what I found maybe slightly, not frustrating, but a bit annoying because you kind of, that is quite interesting and you could do kind of want to dive in a bit to that so i guess that's what you kind of get in if you become a specialist interest then and people come to you for advice within a practice and and things yeah and you can be i think you know when you look at the setup within diabetes diabetes is usually managed a lot by specialist nurses and, and often there's input from a gp i don't know if it always works the same with respiratory um and i think it is an area where gps definitely feel de-skilled in it it's what you've identified how do you get skilled in an area if you're not seeing the patients and then when you do see the patients if you've got a resource um you know if you've got excellent nursing colleagues who know all about it then of course you want to send the patient there because you want them to get best care but it just means that it all it, it becomes this you know I guess a bit like diabetes might be for me where I sort of think okay I can I, I know the I know the basics I know this but then there's all this more complicated stuff happening now and yeah. I feel like that you know so it's it's it can be challenging once you start to develop an interest though you get a little bit of confidence just to be doing a wee bit more of the basic stuff and then and then you just build up a little patient cohort and then once you get known in the practice people will say oh could, would you mind just can I ask you about this can would you mind seeing this this patient so it, it's gradual um but but you can do it yeah um, and then I suppose you you mentioned earlier about then moving into perhaps clinics or, or different areas as well as a, as a GP of specialist interest. I know um, there was a, a GP, uh, an SIGP who uh, had one in dermatology and did a similar thing, ran dermatology clinics in secondary care. Is that sort of, yeah. that's the sort of thing you, you'll be going into or hopefully thinking about or doing? I think it can be a challenge to sometimes know where you sit as a GP with a special interest. And it's quite important fairly early on to try and forge links with secondary care. And again, those don't exist. There's no press here for for Lincoln Clinic. You have to do that work and make those connections. I think GPs with a special interest can have real value in, in clinics and also bring value then. So if you're, I'm fortunate to be in a role looking at improving respiratory outcomes. If I have a foot in both camps and I know what happens a little bit in both, I think that can be quite helpful in, in terms of improving patient pathways and that kind of thing. Um, that that really is the aim because I, when you develop a special interest, you, you probably get to a point in primary care practice where you don't have access to some of the things that you kind of need to use expertise. So for example, I don't have access, I do have access to spirometry. There's a bit of a wait, but I, do, I can access spirometry. I don't have access to things like pheno, so fractional, ex, fractional exhaled nitric oxide, which is really useful for asthma. Um, I've got limited access to um, high resolution CT scan, um, but again, not, not super quickly. So you, you start to move into a position where your ability to progress is limited limited by your access to things. Um, so moving into um, secondary care and just doing some clinics with a bit of support is ideal for you to, to build those skills and to develop experience with more complex patients. Um, and 
Um, yeah, I mean, I think we do see it. So we've got a setup locally with orthopedics who have lots of GPs with a special interest who do the more kind of medical side of orthopedics. Um, and that's that's great. That's a win for practice and a win for, for orthopedics. And um, we see a little bit in dermatology as well. So I think there is real scope for that. Um, and I think if you think that you want to develop an interest, if you happen to be working in that area, it's a really good idea to forge links and to make that known and to, to sort of try and build that into your um, career as you move forward. I think we'll we'll sort of move on to some slightly more medicine-y bits, if that's all right. Um, and I think we, we were, before the podcast, thinking about what would be most useful for medical students and junior doctors thinking about respiratory and in history taking in that. Um, what do you think the, mo- the most important points of, of history taking in respiratory are? I remember a case when I was um, a second year medical student where, you know, it's the, the classic where you ask if they've got birds and this man, you know, lived with pigeons in his caravan and he had bird fancy as lung and I felt like a, you know, felt like uh, like house uh, and obviously treated <laughs> with steroids and it all got better and it was amazing and I kind of I think history taking respiratory is is so important I think oh, more important than other specialties in, in that respect yeah and that's part of the reason I think why why I really like it because I think our, our huge skill as clinicians is in detailed history taking in being interested and being nosy because and we spoke about this a, a bit earlier tests are just tests they're absolutely pointless if you don't have a clinical um, baseline if you don't have a way to say okay this really sounds like asthma for example so and 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 the other thing that suits me really nicely about respiratory is that it, it's mostly fairly basic, ordinary stuff. So the key things in history taking, um, so I guess, so thinking about um, asthma, um, it's it's this episodic symptoms that they happen sometimes and they don't happen at other times. It's usually in relation to triggers and there's often a family history and and that so again it's about being super nosy okay so don't don't so have you got any family history who is affected in your family so i tend to ask now are mum or dad or any siblings affected by asthma allergies itchy skin so those are the ones that really are important um the other thing that i'm quite detailed about particularly if i'm not sure if it's sounding like asthma is what do they mean by wheeze? Okay, so you come across this a lot in lots of specialties. We use words. When I say wheeze, I know what that means. And I know that you know what that means in the same way as I know what that means. But it doesn't mean the same thing to patients. You will often hear patients say, I'm wheezy. And when you get them to demonstrate the noise, they're not describing wheeze. You get them to record it. So wheeze often for patients will mean a noise from the chest. Okay, and wheeze, we know, is a very specific polyphonic sort of musical noise that indicates that there's narrowing of the smaller airways and that that is very suggestive of asthma and so I think being very detailed about that okay so when does that happen and is it can you hear it or can you feel it and which phase of your breathing does it occur in um, and you'll often I've got some breathless patients who come in and do this sort of forced expiratory noise that comes from high up and say but I'm really wheezy and that's really insightful because they're not wheezy um, struggling with their breathing for sure but it's it's a different reason so good history in terms of family history and when they have their symptoms and very specifically what they are you know is it cough is it breathlessness are you tighten your chest is it wheeze what is wheeze can you record it for me can you everyone's got iphones or smartphones nowadays um so that that's a big one um 
COPD wise, I think asthma and COPD are the most common things that, that we see. Um, I, I think it's about going into a little bit more detail about things like, okay, so ex-smoker. Okay, well, that, that does not really that helpful. Did they smoke for five minutes once or did they smoke for 40 years, 60 a day? So quite specific about number of pack years. And also I think with COPD, delving a little bit more into the background because we know that not everyone who smokes gets COPD and that's becoming clear that there are other factors that influence things. So what was their breathing like in early life? Do they know if they were born a bit early? Did they need any respiratory support? Was there asthma in their family? Because these conditions affect disproportionately people living in deprivation. And so there's a high prevalence of respiratory disease in those patients anyway. And you'll often find in COPD patients, or I certainly find if you ask them, uh, quite a lot of them will have had asthma in childhood. And that might affect your treatment because whilst they've smoked a lot and they'll easily have been labelled with COPD, they may very well have a component of asthma. Um, so those are the kind of big ones. And I guess the other one just to tack in there is if they're producing, are they coughing? They're producing a lot of spit. They produce a lot of spit all the time. What colour is it? Is it really thick? People producing lots of spit a lot of the time, who most of whom will end up probably with a diagnosis of COPD, might well have bronchiectasis. And ditto patients with recurrent chest infections. It's not normal to get one or two or three chest infections in a year. And if you're getting that, um, then that warrants investigation for possible bronchiectasis. So th those are the kind of big ones for me. But it's just about being nosy, essentially, and really drilling down mm. and focusing on specifics. Um, and it, it is quite nice. You do feel a bit like house when you mm. have those moments of saying, well, it's not wheeze. That's not wheeze, what you're describing. It's a bit like a light bulb moment. Yeah. And you mentioned about de deprivation there as well. Um, I mean, we're talking about sort of where people live, the mould, things like that. Is that what contributes, I imagine, largely to people having airway disease in these Absolutely. communities? Yeah, so um, mould is the problem more than damp. So, um, it, but yes, that's a, that's another one. You know, where do they live? What's happening where they live? Mm. Um and you know how many pets have they got um etc um how many siblings they have um you know if you're more siblings probably more likely to have more respiratory issues in terms of just you know Apparently. circulating yeah. infection yeah, little yeah. Red infection. Yeah. so that's definitely relevant um and and i guess the, the other thing that is worth touching on is if they're smokers what do they smoke do they smoke cannabis because there's you know evidence that uh, those patients who've got tendency towards COPD who smoke cannabis probably do worse in terms of their lung function. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of mental health comorbidities uh, in particularly in general um, in respiratory disease and also in people living in deprivation. So it's not unusual for people to um, smoke cannabis, for example, as an anxiolytic. Um, and that's important as well. So it's important to vault to ask that specifically because patients often won't volunteer it they just you know it's just smoking it all goes under that umbrella of smoking mm. uh, and um, i know there's a movement at the moment to move to more environmentally friendly inhalers sure. and and um i know the practice i worked at they would send a text to the patient but it would be an automatic switch quite often um mm. do you think that's important in healthcare? do we need to you know value that as much as we're valuing helping patients or, you know? 
It's a really challenging area, I think. And and when you speak about this um, at events and with colleagues, there there's often a, a you know it's often quite an, an animated discussion. So the environment is important, and of the NHS footprint, inhalers is 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 a a component, a percentage of that. The bottom line for me as a respiratory interested person is the best inhaler for a patient is the one that they can and will use. So the worst thing for the environment and for the patient is that they are um, have poorly controlled disease because then they're likely to be using lots of um, a short acting beta agonist, which is probably the, the worst thing. And, and patients are why we do what we do and they're complex and they don't fit into nice neat boxes. Everyone should be able to use a dry powder inhaler, for example, unless they've got very, very poor lung function, very poor inspiratory flow. But some patients just can't. And I've seen it in practice and you teach and you tweak and they just can't use it. And you give them an MDI with a spacer and they're really able to use that. So um, I think we, the patients are always at the centre of what we do and will go badly wrong if we start mass switching patients onto dry powder inhalers because they're better for the environment. It's likely that in the next few years, there'll be movement in terms of less um, problematic F gases in the, in, in the MDI inhalers. So I think we also have to make sure that we're looking further ahead. You know, we're sometimes quite guilty in healthcare of looking at this year and next year, but if there's gonna be a development in the next few years and we've changed everyone to a dry powder inhaler, then that's probably false economy. So dry powder inhalers are better for the environment in general because they don't have gases in them they don't have a propellant if you look at inhaler recycling um dry powder inhalers are not as easy to recycle as mdi inhalers it's a moot point because there are no mass inhaler recycling schemes one of the pharma companies did run one a few years ago and they were inundated with it they couldn't cope with the demand they had to shut it down so that's what most of us would say and 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 the big push to dry powder inhalers that we are seeing is partly related to the fact that in, in Europe as a whole, we're a bit of an outlier. We, we prescribe more uh, metered dose inhalers than we do dry powder uh, at bite over ratio of about 80 to 20 or 70 to 30, which is the, the flip, the, the mirror image of what it is in the rest of Europe. And I'm still not clear on why that is, but, but we'll see movement in the direction of dry powder inhalers, which I have no problem with if patients can use them. Um, and if they can use them, great. If they can't use them, it's just a false economy. And I think it it feels really uncomfortable to be using examples like, oh, this inhaler is this many car journeys to a patient. I don't think that's helpful for patients. I think it can be helpful for clinicians, but I don't think we need to be beating patients with an environmental stick. I think that's, that's the wrong way to go in this. And I think... Um, there's enough complexity in choosing an inhaler for a patient, both for the clinician and for the patient in terms of decision-making without saying, oh, well, this one's a billion times worse than this one. I do tend to say, I factor in and I'll say, you know, these, this is what this one does. This is what this one does. This is how you use them. This one's probably a bit better for the environment if you can use it. Um, so I do factor it in, but, um, but I think we have to be a bit careful and, um, uh, and just make sure we put the, leave the patients at the centre. Yeah, yeah. One of the most common um, respiratory presentations, I think, I, I guess we all see um, wherever you are, you know, primary care, secondary care, is 
recurrent chest infections in people with COPD, and you alluded to it earlier about thinking about bronchiectasis as a as a, a potential diagnosis. But how how you know not all of those patients will have bronchiectasis. Most will just have COPD and are you know poorly controlled. I wonder if you had any sort of um, advice or tips about trying to stop people recurrently coming in with chest infections you know things like rescue packs they use so often they end up on steroids for ages um, and it's a bit of a vicious cycle sometimes. Yeah so COPD exacerbations are are interesting and, and, and fascinating so in terms of bronchiectasis and worrying about bronchiectasis patients who've got COPD who are exacerbating particularly if they grow pseudomonas particularly if they grow it more than once, um, that should raise a, a flag and they should have an HRCT done to exclude bronchiectasis in that situation. If you've got patients who've got other inflammatory conditions like rheumatoid arthritis or inflammatory bowel disease, again, those would be patients that you'd be thinking they probably could do with an HRCT. COPD exacerbations are poorly defined and there is lots of work going on. We've got new criteria called the Rome criteria, looking at diagnosing that more and defining, sorry, exacerbations more clearly. I think it's important to take the history of the exacerbation. Are they wheezy? Are they producing a lot of spit? Are they breathless? Have they been using more of their bronchodilator and has that helped? The um, In terms of giving antibiotics, um, I don't give antibiotics really unless they've got lots of green spits. So green spit means neutrophil activity, which uh, is a bit a marker for bacterial infection. Um, and I don't tend to give steroids unless there's a lot of wheezing. Um, clearly, that's a judgment call. Um, and I think in terms of rescue packs, I do give rescue packs. But if you speak to the the, the more experts than me about this, they're very clear that the reason for giving a rescue pack is not for the patient just to start the treatment without consulting a healthcare professional. That's not why it's there. It's there so that you don't have to do that bit that you know about if you work in GP land where you prescribe it and then it goes to the chemist and you email it and it gets lost and then they can't get down to collect it that day because they don't have a lift. And then it's three days later by the time they start antibiotics. It's for access to the antibiotics, but it is not necessarily for the patient to self-diagnose an exacerbation and start that treatment because the evidence for steroids, oral steroids and COPD is very scant actually. And we know that patients with COPD tend to have multimorbidity in any case, and that using steroids increases your risk of lots of things. So osteoporosis, diabetes. So we need to be careful that we're helping patients to, to take the right treatment at the right time and not just saying, yeah, it's fine, just take your prednisolone. If patients are frequently exacerbating, particularly if they've got a bloody eosinophil count above 0.3, which is normal on a full blood count, um, they will probably benefit from an inhaled steroid. Um, so that's the, the thing that can help. And, and it is the back to basics of COPD. Have they been referred to pulmonary rehab? Have we chatted to them about stopping smoking? Um, have they had their vaccinations? And I think more recently, it is about saying to patients, you know, the most common trigger for COPD exacerbation is viral things. They just wreak havoc on your lung microbiome and you get an exacerbation. It's worth thinking about whether you might want to wear a mask if you're out in the supermarket. If you've got grandchildren who are poorly, you probably best avoid seeing them while they're poorly because their virus is, is going to flare up your COPD, particularly winter months um and i think the other just final bit about that is not everything that's breathless or coughing in copd is a copd exacerbation so what does it feel like to them does it feel like their copd 
have they got ankle swelling? You know, are they sleeping with a billion pills at night? Are they developing heart failure? Have they had their bloods checked for a while? Have they are they anemic? Um, uh, have they had a chest X-ray done? Um, uh, you know, could they actually have a, a lung cancer developing? So it's about thinking more broadly as well and using that COPD exacerbation as an opportunity to just check those things and make sure you're developing delivering good care. Because if you think of it like you know, if you had a wee bit of chest pain, we we wouldn't say, oh well, that's a that's a you know that's a wee bit of that unstable angina. We'll 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 give you a bit of GTN and see how you go. And we kind of do that in COPD. We kind of say, oh, it's just an exacerbation. It's fine. We'll give you this treatment. But we know that exacerbations drive morbidity and mortality in COPD. And from first hospitalized exacerbation, mortality statistics are pretty dire. So it's really important that we use that as an opportunity to to deliver sort of better background care and optimize patients oh so useful yeah thank you I mean, it's more than just an exacerbation of CP- copd as you say and i think but like with lots of intervent not interventions but consultations in primary care it's about yeah like you said an opportunity to look at other things as well you know like you say do they have heart failure you know etc cetera, etc cetera. um final question if that's okay there's lots of um <laughs> There's lots of, I don't want to call it GP bashing. There's lots of hatred towards GPs at the moment. Do you, do you still yeah. enjoy being a GP? A hundred percent. I think there is lots of stuff floating around about that we're not working and then we're all just playing golf. And <laughs> yeah, that we're all exactly. <laughs> and, 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 you know, I love my job. I'm really fortunate. I have amazing colleagues. I get to do some fabulously cool stuff. But I have worked to get there. I have made my job enjoyable for myself, and that has taken uh, that has taken work. The it's such a privileged position as a GP, more privileged I think than lots of other specialties, and we can do really straightforward things that make such a big difference to patients. Um, and that is, you know, even on a bad day for me, there's still nothing else that I'd rather do. I still, you know, I. I would I go in hospital and do full-time respiratory? No, I would always want to have a bit of GP because it is a genuine privilege and a, and, and a pleasure and it's really rewarding. So it's a it's a vocal minority that say they, they can't get an appointment and we're all lazy and we're not seeing face-to-face, but the vast majority of my patients are enormously grateful for the service that they, that they get. Thank you very much for joining us on the Geek Medics podcast. It's been brilliant. Thank you. Thanks. It's been lovely to speak to you. This was the first of two episodes on respiratory medicine and I hope you enjoyed. Next time we're joined by a respiratory nurse specialist in primary care um, to dive down deeper into COPD and asthma. If you enjoyed this episode and you want to hear more from us, please consider subscribing through your podcast provider. You can also follow Geeky Medics on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. We'd love to hear from you with suggestions on who you'd like to hear from next. As always, thank you to the producers of the podcast, Emma Harvey and Lewis Potter.